The Passion Reading for Good Friday. After Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley to a place where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas brought a detachment of soldiers together with police from the chief priests and the Pharisees. And they came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that was to happen to him, came forward and asked them, Whom are you looking for? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus replied, I am he. Judas, who portrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, Whom are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you are looking for me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. I did not lose a single one of those whom you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's slave, and cut off his right ear. The slave's name was Malchus. Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword back into its sheath. Am I not to drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the soldiers, their officer, and the Jewish police arrested Jesus and bound him. First they took him to Anas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was better to have one person die for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple followed Jesus. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter was standing outside at the gate. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out, spoke to the woman who guarded the gate, and brought Peter in. The woman said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the slaves and the police had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing around it and warming themselves. Peter also was standing with them and warming himself. Then the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who heard what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said this, one of the police standing nearby struck Jesus on the face, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered, If I have spoken wrongly, testify to the wrong. But if I have spoken rightly, why do you strike me? 
Then Anas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. They asked him, Are you not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the slaves of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Again, Peter denied it, and at that moment the cock crowed. And they took Jesus from Caiaphas to Pilate's headquarters. It was early in the morning, and they themselves did not enter the headquarters so as to avoid ritual defilement and to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered, If this man were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews replied, We are not permitted to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill what Jesus had said when he indicated the kind of death he was to die. Then Pilate entered the headquarters again and summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you ask this on your own, or did others tell you about me? Pilate replied, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate asked him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am king. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Pilate asked him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went out to the Jews again and told them, I find no case against him. But you have a custom that I release someone for you at Passover. Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? They shouted in reply, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was abandoned. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. And the soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they dressed him in a purple robe. They kept coming up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and striking him on the face. Pilate went out again and said to them, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no case against him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Here is the man. When the chief priests and police saw him, they shouted, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him. 
I find no case against him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he has claimed to be the Son of God. Now when Pilate heard this, he was more afraid than ever. He entered his headquarters again and asked Jesus, Where are you from? Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate therefore said to him, Do you refuse to speak to me? Do you not know that I have the power to release you and the power to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no power over me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are no friend of the emperor. Everyone who claims to be a king sets himself against the emperor. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus outside and sat on the judge's bench at a place called the Stone Pavement, or in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover, and it was about noon. He said to the Jews, Here is your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate asked them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but the emperor. Then he handed him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and carrying the cross by himself, he went out to what is called the place of the skull, which in Hebrew is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, with Jesus between them. Pilate also had an inscription written and put on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, in Latin, and in Greek. Then the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but this man said I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four parts, one for each soldier. They also took his tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who will get it. This was to fulfill what the Scripture says. They divided my clothes among themselves. And for my clothing, they cast lots. And that is what the soldiers did. Meanwhile, standing near the cross of Jesus, were his mother 
and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing beside her, he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, Here is your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his own home. After this, when Jesus knew that all was now finished, he said, in order to fulfill the scripture, I am thirsty. A full jar of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of the wine on a branch of hyssop and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the wine, he said, It is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, the Jews did not want the bodies left on the cross during the Sabbath, especially because that Sabbath was a day of great solemnity. So they asked Pilate to have the legs of the crucified men broken and the bodies removed. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once blood and water came out. He who saw this has testified so that you also may believe. His testimony is true, and he knows that he tells the truth. These things occurred so that the scripture might be fulfilled. None of his bones shall be broken. And again, another passage of Scripture says, they will look on the one whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Amarathia, who was a disciple of Jesus, though a secret one because of his fear for the Jews, asked Pilate to let him take away the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and removed his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, weighing about a hundred pounds. They took the body of Jesus and wrapped it with the spices and linen cloths, according to the burial custom of the Jews. Now there was a garden in the place where he was crucified, and in the garden there was a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. And so, because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Funerals and weddings, too, are things with which most of you are well acquainted, I suspect. I'm guessing that many, if not all of you, have attended more than a few of each. I can tell you that for pastors, weddings and funerals are decidedly different than the typical services of worship at which we officiate and preach on a Sunday morning. And the difference of which I speak has nothing to do with the fact that 
there is a bride and groom standing before the altar, or the fact that a friend or cherished loved one has died. You see, what I'm talking about is the crowd, the congregation, if you will, the people who congregate and attend such services. At weddings and funerals, you can expect a truly diverse and ecumenical gathering of people, Baptists and Bereans, Methodists and Macedonians, Presbyterians and Pentecostals, Quakers and Catholics, just to name a few. This diversity makes for some interesting experiences, and from time to time, some very, what I would call, intense discussions usually over sandwiches in Fellowship Hall. And many of these conversations begin with what I call unsolicited critiques of who we are as Christians in the Lutheran tradition. More correctly, unsolicited critiques of whom we are perceived to be. You see, for many visitors at funerals or weddings, It's the first time they actually get a chance to talk with instead of talking about a pastor from a different church tradition. And that's a good thing. But there are stereotypes. There's no lack of misinformation. There are, and I'm not saying that just other people are guilty. Sometimes we're guilty too. But there are false assumptions and plenty of uninformed opinions about Christians that belong to that church or who are in that denomination. Sometimes the stereotypes are broken, and they're broken with great joy. At a funeral earlier this winter, one woman told me after the service, and I mean, she was so happy, she looked like she was going to jump out of her skin. I had no idea you Lutherans read from the Bible, she said. I had no idea you talked about Jesus. You even sing Amazing Grace. I'm glad she went home with a new understanding. But at some of those gatherings in Fellowship Hall, I've had people refer to me as a Lutheran pastor, as a Catholic priest wannabe. I've been told by others that we Lutherans are quitters. We didn't finish the job of fixing the church back in the 16th century, so others had to finish the job for us. And from time to time, and I'm sure this happens in other churches too, some people come with a bone to pick, a very big bone. I have been told too many times to count, and I quote, you Lutherans, You make it too easy. You act as if everything depends on grace. And that's not a compliment. You see, many Christians, and non-Christians too, are suspicious of grace because grace, it seems, is all too easy. I've lost track of the number of times I've heard this criticism And for all I know, some of you here tonight may have your doubts. You could be doubting the depth of God's love. 
you could be suspicious of the grace we hear of in Jesus. It's not difficult to understand why grace may seem too easy for some. Because grace is not the way the world works, is it? If you want something, you better work and work hard to get it. And once you have it, you had better work equally hard to keep it because there's always somebody just waiting to take it away or take your place. I know, day-to-day life for many people does not feel like an experience of grace. There's nothing gracious about it. The world seems unkind. The world seems profane. It seems harsh. It seems unfair. It seems violent and dangerously unpredictable. In a world like this, grace sounds like some fairy tale. Seems like some cop out so you don't have to deal with reality. At one of those receptions after a funeral or a wedding, I can't remember which, long ago, one highly educated man, he told me about all of his degree work, unsolicited. He came up to me and said, Preacher, Grace is a utopian idea for those who refuse to live in the real world like the rest of us. Mm. You see, for him and others like him, grace is an idea, and it's just an idea, and it is far too good to ever be trusted as true. And just for the record, just for the record, We preachers, we pastors who serve each day and many nights, we do it in the so-called real world just like the rest of you. Rest assured, we experience the beauty and the ugliness of it all just as you do, the living and the dying, the joy and the sorrow, the faithfulness and all the disobedience, the brokenness and the precious moments of restoration. We experience it just like you do, the lies and sometimes the, the wonderful honesty. But those who protest our trust in God's grace have one thing right in their assessment. Their protestation that we live as if everything depends on grace. We do. They don't mean it as a compliment or an affirmation, but they got it right. We do live as if everything depends on grace. Because it does. those same people are wrong when they put forth the idea that this grace is just too easy. You see, the grace of God is easy only for those who have yet to face the reality of their own sin and depravity. Grace is a cop-out only for those who do not fully appreciate the seriousness of their own terminal condition and the consequence of sin, which is always death. You see, nowhere in God's holy scriptures, nowhere in the Bible do we read or do we learn that God evaluates us or grades us on the curb. He commands you, listen, he commands you. 
He doesn't suggest. He commands you to love him with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And he commands you to love your neighbor as yourself. So how are you doing with that? Remember, it's all or nothing. It's pass or fail. Have you tried? Have you really tried to love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength? Have you really tried to love your neighbor as yourself, not just on a pleasant sunny afternoon or a few hours on Sunday morning? How about seven days a week at home, at work, at school? Can you make it just one week without saying something, doing something, or having thoughts that grieve the heart of God and dishonor his holy name? If your life was some sort of reality television show, would you be comfortable, would you, if everyone here got to watch you in action, the way you talk, the way you treat others, when you're not in God's house? Can you make yourself holy? Can you? I can't. Can you keep yourself holy? I surely cannot. The Apostle Paul tried it. So did someone you may have heard of by the name of Martin Luther. They both pursued in different times and different cultures the godly life with more intensity and determination than most of us could ever muster or imagine, and it did them no good. They hit the wall, as everyone does who tries to achieve the righteousness of God on his own. It is through Christ crucified, bloodied, battered, bruised, that you and I obtain access to God's grace in which we stand. This grace has not come to us at some bargain basement price. It is not a blue light special. It is not a cheap remedy for a mild illness. Grace is not a concept. It is truth. It is a reality proven for us on the cross where the Lamb of God bled and died in our place. see, you and I are already as good as dead without Jesus. The Lamb of God, his blood, is no cheap fix. His death for us is not too good to be true. It is good. And it is true. And we truly need it. Grace has come through the crucified and risen Savior. Real blood was shed. A real death occurred. Wonderful, beautiful, perfect Jesus was cast away by the political and religious powers of his day like rubbish, like unwanted trash. Both the Romans and the temple leaders wanted nothing to do with him. Away with him. I wash my hands of him. Who could ever think that grace is cheap, knowing what Jesus did? This is the cost of the grace we receive. It is a free gift to you and me. But the price was paid with a life, the life of God's only Son. And this Lamb of God was not sacrificed in the sanctity and the privacy of the temple, but in full view between criminals bandits, bad guys on a cross. 
So those who might object to the sufficiency of grace have yet to appreciate the gravity of their sin and the greatness of God's love. But you see, when these two meet, the gravity of our sin and the greatness of God's love, then we can truly rejoice knowing that (laughs) everything depends on grace. Not the cheap grace being peddled by so many popular personalities on so many cable church programs, and not the imitation grace in some places and some churches that dares not mention human sin for fear of offending. But the grace of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, who was beaten, who was bloodied, who was crucified. For you, for me, sinners one, and sinners all. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so often silenced at the death of your Son, You called for Jesus who knew no sin to be made sin for us. He came in love among us, but was rejected, despised, in hatred. So we confess that a great mystery confronts us this night at the tomb of sin and death. The borrowed tomb of Christ is our tomb. He carried in his body to the grave our sin and our death, that he might break their hold on us. So trusting in our Lord's promise to rise up again on the third day, we come not to mourn him, but to confess the sin that Jesus would leave buried. Grant to us all the Easter faith that anticipates with joy the day on which you raised your Son from the dead, that we too might live with you forever. So, Father, we pray in Jesus' name, the Lamb of God, and we pray for his sake and our own. Amen.